Greetings, friends. Welcome to another edition of Pushing the Envelope, music decidedly left of center, featuring the finest in the outer realms of contemporary music, from the worlds of rock, jazz, classical, world music, spoken word, ambient, electro-acoustic, etc., 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 with the healthy dollop of new and classic progressive rock and jazz rock fusion. My name's Joel Crutt, and uh, we are going to bring you something we haven't actually done in a while, a Halloween-oriented show. So we open things off with brand new Halloween music from our friend Jack Curtis Dubowski, his new release just out called Halloween Horror. We heard the Monster Walk instrumental and opened with Dark Cotillion Waltz. Spooky sonic journeys, storytelling, eerie instrumentals, dark pop, off-kilter cryptic beats, not just for Halloween, and featuring Kevin Dunn on guitars, composed, arranged, and produced by Jack Curtis Dubowski. Ways you can make contact with Pushing the Envelope. Thank you, Kat. Ways you may make contact with Pushing the Envelope. Our email is pushing the envelope, WHUS, all small letters, at gmail.com. Or you can go to Twitter at ENVPUSHER, numeral one. We are going to enter phase one with music from a really neat compilation that came out back in August, I believe, from the folks at Oral Films, Requiem, Klaus Schulz Tribute, a really cool compilation, and we're going to hear Traumwandler, Dreamwalker, Hall of Nightmare, Tribute to Klaus Schulz, 2008, from violinist T.T. Geigenschrey. Welcome to Phase One. Thank you. 
And so we return to pushing the envelope. Music decidedly left of center. The Halloween edition for this year wrapped up phase one with Lycanthrope. Can't have Halloween without werewolves. From Thinking Plague, their 1989 cuneiform release, In This Life. Prior to that, from Chicago progressive band District 97, we heard Ghost Girl from their album Screens, a 2019 release on MindScan Records. Before that, we heard a tune called Mummies of Cabo Sicanti from the Rhode Island band Dreadnought from their album Hard Driving out on the Red Fez record label from 2017. And I was trying to make sense of what that title referenced. So I went digging, and it has to do with a guy named Isaac Augustus Stanwood, who had been involved with the paper industry, and in 1865 moved to Gardner, Maine, where he started a paper mill near the Great Falls Mill on the Cabasi County, known as the Cabasi Mill. And Cabasi Mill was a one-machine mill which made, quote, bogus manila paper. Now, that doesn't exactly explain where that title came from. But I will read you a poem that will make it quite clear, entitled, I, Augustus Stanwood. Long ago, Augustus Stanwood had a paper mill in Maine. He was quite a clever fellow and not the slightest bit insane. When he was making paper in 1862, they were using rags for pulp, didn't know what else to do. But when the Civil War came and rags were not for sale, they almost shut his mill down to use it for a jail. But Augustus cut his finger, and while bandaging the gash, he had a bright idea. It really was a flash. He remembered that in Egypt, on the railroad by the Nile, they didn't burn coal and they didn't burn oil. They burned Egyptian mummies to get ahead of steam. There was such a big supply that it made Augustus beam. So he sent away to Egypt and brought a few shiploads. He brought them to his mill and took off all their clothes. Every mummy that he brought was wrapped in 30 pounds of linen. And the fine papyrus stuffing, well, that's what he used for the filling. He used up all the mummies to make some wrapping paper. He sold it to the merchants, to the butcher and the baker. But his employees, they got sick and some customers, they died. And poor old I, Augustus, had to run away and hide for the cholera bug was hiding in the mummy's clothes. Why Augustus didn't sterilize, only heaven knows. Now the moral of this story can be very plainly seen. Never push your dear old mummy in our number 12 machine. The mummies of Cabasi Conti from Dreadnought. Prior to that, Ghost Killers from the new release from Dan Kerfurst called Arkinetics out on Numa Music. And we started the set out with Traumwandler, Dreamwalker. Hall of Nightmare, a tribute to Klaus Schulz from 
8, played and composed by T.T. Geigenschrey from a cool release on oral films from over the summer called Requiem, Klaus Schul's Tribute, a compilation. For phase two, we're going to start out with a piece called The Music of Eric Zahn. It's played by the Kronos Quartet with Peter Hamill doing the narration. And it's composed by John Geist. And this is from a bootleg. It's like a bootleg of a bootleg. So the fidelity isn't great, but it is interesting. And um, H.P. Lovecraft wrote the story, The Music of Eric Zahn. And I dug around and in an interview that Peter Hamill did with Anno Prasad from his uh, interviews, series of interviews, I'm just going to read you a bit of what Peter Hamill had to say about this. I arrived at rehearsals with the assumption that the narrator would be over on the left standing at a lectern on the side, but oh no, I was bang right in the middle of the quartet. Anyone who knows a string quartet knows it is a living, breathing theme beamed down from Mars or some other place. It is a family and siblings that has all the stuff of living together. So there was a lot of electricity zinging around, even though they were relaxed. I was the one that was stressed out because it became clear I had to be completely on the money because there was a point in the narration in which we reached a status and then a note is played after which I could continue the story. The first time we rehearsed, I was quite a long way off. We were aware that we only had two opportunities to go through it all before the show the next day. We arranged to have Joan Jean Renaud, the cellist at the time, give me a nod when we reached the point when it was time for me to carry on. We had a run-through, and it was okay, and the timing was right. I looked up, got her nod, and it worked. When it came time to the performance, I was totally wired. I got to the point at which I was looking for her nod, and I looked up, and she was looking away completely. It was only after a second or so I thought, what happened here? Then she turned and gave me a wink, and I realized we hit it so spot on that I reached my cue exactly at the point required and missed her nod because it was so perfect. It was great that it worked for 24 hours or so. It was an experience totally outside of my comfort zone, but it was completely in the world of what music is about. A little fear can be really good when it comes to performing music. So we are going to hear from a live performance at the London Barbican from 7.22.94. John Geist's music and H.P. Lovecraft's story, The Music of Eric Zahn. Our last piece this evening was written back in 1978 by John Geist. <laughs> And it was the first uh, made-for-radio piece that we um, had done at that time. And it's set to a story by H.P. Lovecraft called The Music of Eric Zahn. And here to 
narrate the music of Eric Zahn is Peter Hamill. Please welcome Peter Hamill. examined maps of the city with the greatest care, yet have never again found the Rue d'Arcey. These maps have not been modern maps alone, for I know that names change. I have, on the contrary, delved deeply into all the antiquities of the place, and have personally explored every region of whatever name which could possibly answer to the street I knew as the Rue d'Arcey. But despite all I have done, it remains an humiliating fact that I cannot find the house, the street, or even the locality where during the last months of my impoverished life as a student of metaphysics at the university, I heard the music of Eric Zahn. That my memory is broken, I do not wonder, for my health, physical and mental, was gravely disturbed throughout the period of my residence in the Rue d'Arcey. But that I cannot find the place again is both singular and perplexing, for it was within a half-hour's walk of the university and was distinguished by peculiarities which could hardly be forgotten by anyone who had been there. Yet, I have never met a person who has seen the Rue d'Arcey. The Rue d'Arcey lay across a dark river bordered by precipitous brick blear windowed warehouses and spanned by a ponderous bridge of dark stone. It was always shadowy along that river, as if the smoke of neighboring factories shut out the sun perpetually. The river was also odorous with evil stenches which I have never smelled elsewhere and which may someday help me to find it since I should recognize them at once. Beyond the bridge were narrow cobbled streets with rails and then came the ascent, at first gradual but incredibly steep as the Rue d'Arcey was reached. I have never seen another street as narrow and steep as the Rue d'Arcey. It was almost a cliff, closed to all vehicles, consisting in several places of flights of steps and ending at the top in a lofty ivied wall. Its paving was irregular, sometimes stone slabs, sometimes cobblestones, and sometimes bare earth with struggling greenish-gray vegetation. The houses were tall, peat-roofed, incredibly old, and crazily leaning backward, forward, and sideways. Occasionally, an opposite pair, both leaning forward, almost met across the street like an arch, and certainly they kept most of the light from the ground below. The inhabitants of the street impressed me. At first, I thought it was because they were all silent and reticent, 
But later, I decided it was because they were all very old. I do not know how I came to live on such a street, but I was not myself when I moved there. I had been living in many poor places, always evicted for want of money, until at last I came upon that tottering house in the Rue d'Arcey, kept by the paralytic Blander. It was the third house from the top of the street, and by far the tallest of them all. My room was on the fifth story, the only inhabited room there since the house was almost empty. On the night I arrived, I heard strange music from the peaked garret overhead, and the next day asked old Blando about it. He told me it was an old German viol player, a strange, dumb man, who signed his name as Eric Zahn, and who played evenings in a cheap theatre orchestra, adding that Zahn's desire to play in the night after his return from the theatre was the reason he had chosen this lofty and isolated garret room, whose single gable window was the only point on the street from which one could look over the terminating wall at the declivity and panorama beyond. Thereafter, I heard Zahn every night, and although he kept me awake, I was haunted by the weirdness of his music. Knowing little of the art myself, I was yet certain that none of his harmonies had any relation to music I had heard before. The longer I listened, the more I was fascinated, until after a week I resolved to make the old man's acquaintance. One night, as he was returning from his work, I intercepted Zahn in the hallway and told him that I would like to know him and be with him when he played. He was a small, lean, bent person, with shabby clothes, blue eyes, grotesque, satyr-like face, and nearly bald head. And at my first words seemed both angered and frightened. My obvious friendliness, however, finally melted him, and he grudgingly motioned me to follow him up the dark, creaking, and rickety attic stairs. His room, one of only two in the steeply pitched garret, was on the west side, toward the high wall that formed the upper end of the street. Its size was very great, and seemed the greater because of the extraordinary barrenness and neglect. Of furniture, there was only a narrow iron bedstead, a dingy washstand, a small table, a large bookcase, an iron music rack, and three old-fashioned chairs. Sheets of music were piled in disorder about the floor. The walls were of bare boards and had probably never known plaster, whilst the abundance of dust and cobwebs made the place seem more deserted than inhabited. Evidently, Eric Zahn's world of beauty lay in some far cosmos of the imagination. Motioning me to sit down, the dumb man closed the door, turned the large wooden bolt, and lighted a candle to augment the one he had brought with him. He now removed his vial from its moth-eaten covering, and taking it, seated himself in the least uncomfortable of the chairs. Playing from memory, 
He enchanted me for over an hour with strains I had never heard before. Strains which must have been of his own devising. To describe their exact nature is impossible for one unversed in music. But to me, they were notable for the absence of any of the weird notes I had overheard from my room below on other occasions. Those haunting notes I had remembered and had often hummed or whistled inaccurately to myself. satellite face lost the bored placidity it had possessed during the playing and seemed to show the same curious mixture of anger and fright which I noticed when first I accosted the old man. For a moment I was inclined to use persuasion regarding rather likely the winds of senility and even tried to awaken my host's weirdo mood by whistling a few of the strains to which I had listened the night before. But I did not pursue this course for more than a moment. For when the dumb musician recognized the whistled air, his face grew suddenly distorted with an expression wholly beyond analysis, and his long, cold, and bony right hand reached out to stop my mouth and silence the crude imitation. As he did this, he further demonstrated his eccentricity by casting a startled glance toward the lower curtain window as if fearful of some intruder. A glance doubly absurd since the garret stood high and inaccessible above all the adjacent rooms, this window being the only point on the steep street, as the concierge had told me, from which one could see over the wall at the summit. The old man's glance brought Lando's remark to my mind, and with a certain capriciousness, I felt a wish to look out over the wide and dizzying panorama of moonlit roofs and city lights beyond the hilltop, which of all the dwellers in the room, I say, only this crabbed musician could see. I moved toward the window and would have drawn aside the nondescript curtains when, with a frightened rage even greater than before, the dumb lodger was upon me again, this time motioning me with his head toward the door as he nervously strove to drag me thither with both hands. Now, thoroughly disgusted with my host, I ordered him to release me and told him I would go at once. His clutch relaxed. And as he saw my disgust and offence, his own anger seemed to subside. He tightened his relaxing grip, but this time in a friendly manner, forcing me into a chair. Then, with an appearance of wistfulness, crossed to the littered table, where he wrote many words with a pencil, in the laboured French of a foreigner. The note which he finally handed me was an appeal for tolerance and forgiveness. Zahn said that he was old, lonely, and afflicted with strange fears and nervous disorders connected with his music and with other things. 
He had enjoyed my listening to his music and wished I would come again and not mind his eccentricities. But he could not play to another his weird harmonies and could not bear hearing them from another. Nor could he bear having anything in his room touched by another. He had not known until our hallway conversation that I could overhear his playing in my room and now asked me if I would arrange with Blando to take a lower room where I could not hear him in the night. He would, he wrote, defray the difference in rent. As I sat deciphering the execrable French, I felt more lenient toward the old man. He was a victim of physical and nervous suffering, as was I, and my metaphysical studies had taught me kindness. In the silence, there came a slight sound from the window. The shutter must have rattled in the night wind, and for some reason, I started almost as violently as the director's are. So, when I had finished reading, I shook my host by the hand and departed as a friend. The next day, Blando gave me a more expensive room on the third floor, between the apartments of an aged moneylender and the room of a respectable upholsterer. There was no one on the fourth floor. It was not long before I found that Sam's eagerness for my company was not as great as it had seemed while he was persuading me to move down from the fifth story. He did not ask me to call on him, and when I did call, he appeared uneasy and played listlessly. This was always at night. In the day, he slept and would admit no one. My liking for him did not grow, though the attic room and the weird music seemed to hold an odd fascination for me. I had a curious desire to look out of that window, over the wall and down the unseen slope at the glittering roofs and spires which must lie outspread there. Once, I went up the garret during theatre hours when Zahn was away, but the door was locked. staircase to the peaked garret. There, in the narrow hall, outside the bolted door with the covered keyhole, I often heard sounds which filled me with an indefinable dread. The dread of vague wonder and brooding mystery. It was not that the sounds were hideous, for they were not, but that they held vibrations suggesting nothing on this globe of earth, and that at certain intervals they assumed a symphonic quality, which I could hardly conceive as produced by one player. One night, as I listened at the door, I heard the shrieking viol swell into a chaotic babble sound. A pandemonium which would have led me to doubt my own shaking sanity had there not come from behind that barred portal a piteous proof that the horror was real. The awful, inarticulate cry which only a mute can utter and which rises only in moments of the most terrible fear and anguish. 
I knocked repeatedly at the door, received no response. I waited in the back hallway, shivering with cold and fear, till I heard the poor musician's feeble effort to rise from the floor by the aid of a chair. Believing him just conscious after a fainting fit, I renewed my rapping at the same time, calling out my name reassuringly. I heard Sam stumble to the window and close both shutter and sash, then stumble to the door, which he falteringly unfastened to admit me. His delight at having me present was real, for his distorted face gleamed with relief while he clutched at my coat as a child clutches at his mother's skirts. Shaking pathetically, the old man forced me into a chair whilst he sank into another, beside which the viol and bow lay carelessly on the floor. He sat for some time inactive, nodding oddly, but having a paradoxical suggestion of intense and frightened listening. Subsequently, he seemed to be satisfied, and crossing to a chair by the table, wrote a brief note, handed it to me, and returned to the table where he began to write rapidly and incessantly. The note implored me, in the name of mercy, and for the sake of my own curiosity, to wait where I was, while he prepared a full account in German of all the marvels and terrors which beset him. I waited and the dumb man's pencil flew. It was perhaps an hour later, while I still waited, and while the old musician's feverishly written sheet still continued to pile up, that I saw Tsan start as from the hint of a horrible shock. Unmistakably, he was looking at the curtained window and listening, shuddering. Then I half fancied I heard a sound myself, though it was not a horrible sound, but rather an exquisitely low and infinitely distant musical note, suggesting a player in one of the neighboring houses, or in some abode beyond the lofty wall over which I had never been able to look. Upon Tsar, the effect was terrible, for dropping his pencil, suddenly he rose, seized his viol, and commenced to rend the night with the wildest playing I have ever heard. It would be useless to describe the playing on that dreadful night. It was more horrible than anything I had ever overheard, because I could now see the expression of his face and could realize that this time the motive was stark fear. He was trying to make a noise, to ward something off or drown something out. What? I could not imagine. Awesome, though I thought it must be. The playing grew fantastic, delirious, and hysterical. The player was dripping with an uncanny perspiration and twisted like a monkey, always looking frantically at the curtain window. In his frenzied strains, I could almost see shadowy satyrs and bacchanals dancing and wheeling insanely through seething abysses of cloud and smoke and lightning. The shutter began to rattle in a howling night wind, which had sprung up outside as if in answer to the mad playing within. Zart screaming Viol now outdid himself, emitting sounds I have never thought a Viol could emit. The shutter rattled more loudly, unfastened, and commenced slamming against the window. Then the glass broke shiveringly under the persistent impacts, and the chill wind rushed in, making the candles sputter and rustling the sheets of paper on the table. Begun to write out his horrible secret. I looked at Zahn and saw that he was past conscious observation. His blue eyes were bulging, glassy, and sightless, and the frantic plague had become a blind, mechanical, unrecognizable orgy. 
stronger than the others, caught up the manuscript and bore it toward the window. I followed the flying sheets in desperation, but they were gone before I reached the demolished planes. And when I reached the window, it was very dark, but the city's lights always burned, and I expected to see them there amidst the rain and wind. Yet, when I looked from that highest of all gable windows, looked while the candles sputtered and the insane viol howled with the night wind, I saw no city spread below, and no friendly lights gleamed from remembered streets. Only the blackness of space illimitable. Unimagined space, alive with motion and music, and having no semblance of anything on earth.
And so we wrap up another edition of Pushing the Envelope with new music from Wings of an Angel. Some dark ambience featuring some very unusual titles and artwork. The name of the track we heard was Inventing New Emotions to Feel During a Full Moon. And that's from an album called Melodies of Miraculous Boredom to a Pariah Who Cannot Become One of the Quorum. And that's a self-release you can find on Bandcamp. And most of his stuff is cost-free and uh, quite interesting. So, Wings of an Angel. Also into more dark ethno-ambience, we've got the music of David Toop from his album Spirit World, 1997 release on Virgin Records. We heard Phantoms Keeping Watch. One of my favorite albums, though I don't think critically it did very well, Nick Mason's Fictitious Sports, out on Columbia from 1981, featuring essentially Carla Blaze Band and... Uh, her compositions, and we heard the ever-entertaining Boo to You Too. Prior to that, we heard Arthur Brown, and I actually took off the last piece, Fire, and replaced it with a current recording by Arthur Brown featuring James Williamson from the Stooges, Brian Auger, and Carmen Apice off of Arthur Brown's new album called Monster Ball out on the Cleopatra label. We heard Fire. He sounded actually in pretty good voice because I've heard some other things by him where <laughs> he sounds like about how old he is. So um, yeah, this was pretty good. And prior to that, we heard Fire Poem, Nightmare, and Prelude the original recordings from 1968 from the crazy world of Arthur Brown out on the Polydor label. And way back yonder, we opened with an H.P. Lovecraft story featuring music from composer John Geist called The Music of Eric Zahn, brought to us by the Kronos Quartet and featuring the storytelling skills of Peter Hamill from a London Barbican concert from 1994. Have a good Halloween, y'all, and we will see you next time. Till then, take care. <laughs>